This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsla, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. This week, I'm excited to be joined on the Future of Security Operations podcast by David Seidman, Head of Detection and Response at Robinhood, an online brokerage firm with a mission to democratize finance for everyone. David has almost 20 years of experience in software and security, having worked for some huge names like Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, and now Robinhood. David writes regularly, and you can find some of their brilliant thought pieces on their LinkedIn account. David, it is great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Before we jump in, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the security space? Sure. Yeah, so I was the stereotypical kid who took the clock apart when I was really young um, and started playing with computers basically as soon as I could get my hands on one. And one of the first things I got into was reverse engineering, just figuring out how the thing worked. Um, and went to college, studied computer science and also cognitive science. Uh, and uh, basically joined Microsoft as a computer science cog in the machine. They had a job. I needed a job uh, not related to security at all. Um, I was working as a program manager on Microsoft Office service packs, if anyone remembers those, uh, big collections yeah. of bug fixes. And my first real service pack was very security focused. If you remember back in the early 2000s, Microsoft got with the security picture uh, I managed the office project to fix all the hundreds to thousands of security bugs that had accrued over the years. Wow. Uh, that got me into security and things went from there. Um, I joined the office security team fixing office vulnerabilities. I joined the Microsoft Central Incident Response Team. And uh, basically any time from 2010 to 2016 that you were reading about Microsoft security in the news in a bad way, uh, it was my job to make that situation better, usually by fixing the problem, sometimes by providing guidance or correcting incorrect rumors. But uh, it was it was quite a job. If you've if you've heard of it and it was from that era, I was probably at the center of it for Microsoft. I was gonna say, yeah, not only at the forefront, like in terms of attacks and in terms of detection, but also at the forefront in terms of taking the the brunt of the like stick and like the the anger for people at like at dealing with security problems. Um, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that time? You know, what 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 was what, what was the day to day? What were you doing? You spent like ten years in Microsoft, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, the first four were with Office, and then the second or the next six were with the Response Center (MSRC). And it was really, uh, you know, I took the job because I wanted an adrenaline rush at work, and I got what I signed up for. So it was a, a constant flood of zero-day vulnerabilities, uh, things that were technically zero days, but not as interesting as the press was making them out to be mm -hmm. uh, completely false rumors, own goals where you know we screwed something up. And 
it was a very interesting thing to be a part of because I got insight into the vulnerability discovery process, into real world attack campaigns, uh, into press and media management, PR, and then of course also into incident response detection forensics. Let's talk a, 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 a tiny little bit about that, and it's, it's a tiny bit of a tangent. But I I spent a long yeah I spent a long time in in incident response, and I was involved in a number of incidents which hit the hit the front pages. What I found. Yeah, I find it sore all the time. Like even if your job is detect and respond and not prevent, it's still like an attack on you and attacking the company. But the parts that I found really hard was like when they were criticizing you for things that weren't necessarily true or were like saying, yeah, saying things that like, I suppose, misrepresented, you know, how things happen. Do you have any examples of, I suppose, or ways that, if some an incident does happen, how you can control the comms or what, what do you learn there? Um, it's interesting. I, I should say, by the way, that I haven't worked for Microsoft. Yeah, of course, for a long time. So take this and for, for my own personal opinion uh, or my experiences. Um, one of the things that I found that I really liked is if you did something wrong, if you got something wrong, just admit it. Yeah. Don't don't try and spin. If you have a vulnerability, don't try and tell people you don't. Don't downplay it. Um, the cover-up can be worse truth. than the crime itself. Yeah, and, and nobody believes it. And if you tell the truth most of the time, or sorry, if you tell the truth when you've made an error, then the times when you have not made an error, your denial is more credible. Yep. Um, the other thing that I learned that I thought was interesting was the degree to which the media relies on uh, sources at companies for information, both uh, ours, competitors, interest groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the the degree of engagement between the press and the involved parties surprised me. Yeah, that makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. I was also. Uh... Yeah, impressed sometimes with the the level of accuracy that they could uh, they could have in some stories. But yeah, it's, it's it kind of goes back to, um, the like you can actually build a huge amount of trust by communicating clearly, even if you have had a yeah, even if you had had like a serious incident, saying here's exactly what happened, releasing. And Microsoft were some of the first crews to like re- release IOCs, release intel about the attacks, and share that information so that people could yeah could. could maybe the public would be angry, but the security community certainly respected it. And we're like, actually, this is a, you know, they're, they're doing a good job and they're responding effectively and correctly here, um, which is uh, which is great. So from there, you moved into, you joined the, the, the Google, or you joined Google and you started their cloud detection team. Talk to me a little bit about some of the, so some of the work in starting a team, like in an area as complex as cloud, but in a company of the size of Google, it must've been uh, intense and hard as well. It was and it wasn't. I joined a team in the detection team, the detection and response team at Google that was very high functioning. Okay. Uh, great managers, uh, a great team culture, had a lot of the foundational work already done. So we were able to focus both on the people aspects of building a team, of hiring the right people, building a team culture, mm-hmm. and the technical aspects of developing expertise in cloud at a time when Google Cloud itself was developing rapidly. Of course, it continues to, but this was, you know, 2016. It was quite a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to 
wrap all of our heads around the enormous complexity that is the internals of a public cloud provider, um, the problems that everyone has doing detection and response in cloud are magnified for the companies that operate them. So trying to figure that out was a tremendous technical challenge, but also of tremendous technical interest. Got it. You spent that little bit of time in uh, Salesforce, leading their security team before joining Robinhood. What was the, I guess, what was the, uh, what was the desire to move to Robinhood? Like, I'm, I'm curious about moving from like Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, like three of the largest, yeah, l- largest orgs, largest companies in the world, and certainly in the security space, spending a huge, like, was that a deliberate conscious change to, yeah, to, to to say I want I want to move into a little bit more of a into a totally different challenge I suppose. Uh, truthfully, that wasn't the main reason I moved to Robinhood. I was attracted okay. first by the mission, democratize finance for all. Yeah. That really spoke to me and continues to. And second, by the people that I met during the interview process, and again continue to meet great people and work with great people. Those were the things, the mission and the people that attracted me to the company. The size was secondary. Yeah. I had spent my entire career with these giant companies and I thought I should get more diverse experience and try something smaller, try yeah. something that wasn't completely tech focused. That makes yeah, it makes it makes a ton of sense, I suppose. You're also dealing with like completely different challenges, right? Like the 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 challenge of protecting Microsoft, the, the people that are attacking, well, I take that back, everybody's going to be attacking Microsoft, everybody's going to be attacking Google, but certainly the people that are targeting Robin Hood, you're probably dealing with a, yeah, different threat profile, different threat actors, different, yeah, different responsibilities, pe- people more finance oriented, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's a, a much different set of adversaries, even though the financially motivated adversaries we face at Robinhood are also attacking Google, Microsoft, Salesforce. Those companies also have to worry about the entire slate of nation state actors. And while we do worry about them, they are lower on our priority list and we are lower on their priority list relative to the financial actors. So I'm curious about some of the other, uh, like the other changes. What are some of the other differences you've noticed in like a Robin Hood versus a, um, yeah, like versus some of the large organizations that you have, you have worked in? Uh, a few major differences. Uh, probably the biggest is the use of vendors. Uh, when I worked for Google and Microsoft, we had such massive scale and unique and odd needs that no vendor could service us very effectively. So we had to build everything in-house and we had the capability to do that. Um, Salesforce, a little bit less so. We still use vendors. We also built a lot in-house. At Robinhood, uh, we can use off-the-shelf solutions. And so we do. Uh, And you know, there's no reason for my team to be writing detection for a piece of malware that's widely known when there are companies that are doing that at scale for millions of customers. So uh, we try to buy everything we can and build the things that we can't. Uh, Another major difference is agility. Uh, At Robinhood, you can get all of the security leadership and all of the security operations org into one small room and make a decision right there at a larger company. You can't even get all the people from the detection team into one room, all of the senior leadership of the detection team, which is big enough to have its own senior leadership and junior leadership. 
Um, so we're able to make decisions a lot faster and move more quickly. The counterpoint to that is chaos. Like my ability to move fast is my partner team's randomization and chaos. So it cuts both ways. Yeah, it's, it seems... Um... Yeah, it seems like that's a great opportunity to learn though, right? It's a great opportunity to to make some decisions and like, yeah, your agility and yeah, the speed that you can move at, it probably lends to, uh, it definitely lends to a startup. It's the reason why startups succeed in many ways, right? Yeah, I find it to be a net positive for sure. Um, although it causes problems sometimes, we're able to move faster to solve those problems. Uh, so it overall, I much prefer the agile model, even if it does mean more disruption. I was listening to a podcast that you did with uh, with Jack Naglieri from Panther, and he was uh, asking you a little bit about, yeah, some of your detection strategy. And you had some interesting points around, uh, I suppose, moving to, um, yeah, like a sing- single points on the kill chain where you're saying, actually, we don't necessarily need to be able to detect everything. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? I was uh, definitely, uh, yeah, d- Definitely curious to see, have you come come any further in implementing and how's, how's it going? Yeah, to recap, the idea is it's very difficult to create detection for every possible TTP across the entire kill chain. You know, there's hundreds of things in the MITRE attack matrix, and many of them are very generic with lots of specific implementations underneath them. It's not realistic to cover those even for a vendor. Uh, so... What we've played with is focusing on a choke point, uh, which in the kill chain model, by definition, each stage is a choke point. Yeah. And maybe we can concede that the attacker is going to get a foothold. We don't think we're going to stop them from getting on some unprivileged machine. Yeah. But the number of administrative accounts is limited. Those we can focus tightly on protecting. Their usage is limited. We can focus on detecting abnormal usage. Um, that's just an example, not necessarily the of course, way. Yeah. Uh, and you can take this as a philosophy. It would probably be foolish to only ever work on one stage of the kill chain, but taking the idea that we're going to focus on specific stages where an attacker has to do something unusual or where there are limited options for an attacker mm-hmm. lets us be efficient in the use of our time and the ROI we get from building detection. Yeah, so essentially you're trading off some ability for the attacker to make some progress in knowing that actually later on you're going to be able to catch them with higher fidelity and presumably keep your security team uh, focused on like better alerts and more like, yeah, higher fidelity, higher, po- more positive alerts and yeah, not not chasing noise. That's exactly right. You're going to miss some of the things an attacker does. Yes, that's inevitably. Let them succeed in the things you care less about. Yeah, and ironically, sometimes they have, uh, yeah, attackers will believe, actually, once I'm in, it's a lot easier because, you know, hey, that's the, that's the hard part. But even if you do get in, it's okay. We've got a whole lot of, uh, of tripwires or whole lot of canaries that we can, uh, we can catch you on uh, a little bit later on. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll dive into one or two areas around, I suppose, false positives and around, like keeping your team, uh, keep, keeping the, the health of your team. I know that's an area that's, that, that you care about a lot, but I want to talk about your, um, so it's how you keep on top of uh, like of your technical technical abilities while also managing a team. So you're definitely like no longer an individual contributor, but you wrote an art- article on LinkedIn recently around the trade-off of technical management where it's hard to both be that engineer and be the manager. I, I suppose, how, how do you balance it or how do you, uh, what sort of approach do you take? 
you only have so much time in a day and you need to decide how you spend that time between managing and technical work. Yeah. And as a manager, your job is to help your people succeed and your team succeed, not to do the technical work yourself. That's just not your job. You need to be technical enough to do your people management job, to evaluate the performance of your people, to create effective technical strategies, ask hard questions, and generally understand what's going on and hold a high bar for the team's performance, but you're not hands-on keyboard implementing things all day. That That's not your role. That's not what you're there for. Uh, so... As a manager, I think you do your team a disservice if you invest too heavily in your technical capabilities rather than your management capabilities. So I focus most of my time on becoming a better manager. I think it's important that you keep up your technical relevance so that you understand the technologies that your team is using. Ideally, if you have time, spending a little bit of time, like maybe 10% of your time doing technical work, specifically so you're familiar with the performance of your team members and of the technology, uh, not in order to make your own technical contribution. Uh, but fundamentally, as a manager, your job is to make your team effective. And you do that by being a good manager, not by being a technical master. So how do you, like, again, Robinhood is an organization, a, a financial organization that has to take security seriously, but how do you, what lessons have you learned from your previous roles about, I suppose, creating a culture of security or culture of safety in Robinhood? Yeah, I do have the advantage that Robinhood's number one value is safety first. And that's a, that's a pretty good advantage. <laughs> yeah, it works really well. Uh, we basically don't get pushback. We um, we work with teams to find the best way to achieve our security goals and our business goals, but there's no disagreement that security takes precedence. And we've never faced a situation in my experience where we had serious pushback about the need to do something. There will always be questions of exactly when and how fast we need to achieve security goals. And that exists completely within the security organization as well. And rightly but so. Yeah, absolutely. You, again, you only have so much time in the day mm -hmm. and you do need to succeed in your business goals or you won't have a business anymore. So we try to balance that. But, you know, it's 2023. Everyone acknowledges that security is really, really important. And of course, everyone acknowledges that business is important too. Like I said, if you don't succeed in business, you don't have a business to secure. So I think we've come a very long way from where I first started. When I first started in the industry, it was very much security pushing back and limiting what the business could do and the business trying to evade all of the security controls so they could ship more faster. That's not where we are today. And it's a very good thing. Yeah, I um, I saw a, uh, a good thread there recently on LinkedIn. It was somebody saying that the CISO shouldn't report to the CTO. And I probably disagree with that. I think it's absolutely fine depending on the organization and uh, there's definitely conflicts and all that but there was somebody who just had a hot take in response basically saying that the uh cease the role of the CISO and the role of security teams are like completely like inflated these days that in reality most organizations that the somebody in the marketing team will just say i accept that risk and they'll like you know move and they'll whatever like send send details to this con or like send whatever, buy this tool or send details to this customer or this uh, partner, or maybe it's the, you know, CTO will say, I, I want to, yeah, like I want to build this, this product. Um, 
And I don't think that's the case. I think that like in modern organizations, the like CISO has like their role is definitely influencing, but also the role of like a security leader is to build up that influence so that they're not saying no, but rather they've persuaded somebody that actually this is the right thing to do. And it's really important for the organization. And it's not about accepting a risk. It's about saying that that's contrary to our values, right? Yes. I think I would add that security teams, at least the most mature teams, have recognized that security not only needs to be easy, it needs to be invisible. It needs to be built into processes and tools so that individual engineers, engineering leaders don't even need to think about it. They they are secure by default, and all they have to do is use the tools we provide, deal with the warnings that we flag, and uh, they don't need to think about it beyond that. Now, that that's certainly an aspirational goal. It's not something anyone has achieved yet, but I think we've recognized that we need to decrease friction so that it isn't a decision about what to prioritize, but we can have both things, good business and what are, what are some examples of those trade-offs that you'd like to see or that you, you've seen recently where, where people are doing that right? Uh, a classic example is it used to be that the a product team wrote a bunch of code, the security team came in and ran their vulnerability yeah. discovery, their fuzzers, their static analysis tools, and they dumped a bunch of bugs on the product team. And then the product team had to triage those and decide which ones to fix. We've moved that upstream now. So from the moment that code starts being developed, the static analysis tools are running on the repo and they flag bugs as soon as they're created, usually even before the code gets checked in. The fuzzers often run automatically. They're feeding in results throughout the product development lifecycle. We're constantly analyzing our cloud posture so that if something goes wrong, we flag it operationally. Um, It's just a much more automated environment. And also security uh, and security architecture is involved from the very start as well. So that it's not actually you need to like patch this bug. It's actually this data flow shouldn't be existing in the, in the first place. We should be able to make this or have the same influence by doing something a slightly different, uh, different way. And we can remove this category of risk altogether. At least I hope. That's right. Another aspect is when folks are designing products, they loop in security from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Just shifting, shifting left, I suppose. So like, and that's definitely one way security has like evolved, like security has evolved massively over the you know the last 20 years. How would you, yeah. How do you describe the state of security operations today? Uh, I think we are in a place that is simultaneously very mature and very immature. Um, Interesting. We so when I first started, a lot of detection was like literal regex on log files and an army of low paid SOC analysts who spent the vast majority of their time marking alerts as false positive. And maybe it made some people feel good. It probably occasionally caught incidents, but it was an enormous waste of time and money, and it was not very effective at detecting incidents. Mm -hmm. So over time, we saw this evolve with the development of more and more and better tools that added capabilities for detection that correlated across different alert types that automatically responded to alerts, that automatically added contextual information so that when the human evaluates an alert, they have everything they need to make a decision and they have a button they can click to enact containment or other remediation. Um, That has been a tremendous development since I've been in the industry. 
at the same time, we're still not very good at this. Uh, if you look at detection rates, like I have not talked with anyone who detects every single technique that red team uses in every exercise. Like that is just very, very far from reality. Yeah. And the red team is the easy one. They're the attackers who tell us what they're going to do. You know, they have a scope that's usually limited by some rules of engagement. Uh, they do one exercise and if they get caught, they're done. They don't keep coming back and back and back. Um, and there are still many companies out there who are not using all of these tools. They're not using correlation. They, they're not using uh, SOAR or automation, or they're using it only in very basic ways. Um, so we still have, and even at the high end, our detection is still not very good. So even people who are doing all the right things are still not detecting everything. So I think as far as we've come, we also have a long way to go. Yeah, we we definitely do, and I like I know uh, like automation plays a huge part in that, but it's also like it's critical in it's I suppose it's still really hard, and it's still like the the challenge of being able to detect everything results in that challenge of like false positives, right? That if when you have too many to deal with, you're gonna like burn out, and you're gonna yeah, you, your team's mental health and your team's readiness and your team's uh ability even to filter or to, to detect the signal from the noise is yeah it's it, like it, it's compromised what what are you like i think automation is definitely one of those things but what what are what are some of the things that robin hood are doing or the dnr team and robin hood are uh are doing to address that challenge um i think automation really is the key thing um at a previous job i had the our team had the motto humans are only required when humans are required. Yeah. Um, there are so many things humans do today that could be done automatically, often by very simple machine intelligence, sometimes by more advanced techniques that are still well within understood science and understood technology. Um, and I've seen a range of capabilities across different organizations. You can use automation to get alerts down to a point where humans are making human qualitative decisions that are outside of what current technology can achieve in the in the AI sense. So a concrete example, is this domain related to an existing project at our company? Uh, classic problem. You see uh, an S3 bucket or a storage bucket that has previously had very low traffic volumes. All of a sudden, it starts exfiltrating a huge amount of data. Mm -hmm. Is that an attacker stealing all of your secrets or is it a new product that just launched? Yep. That's a very difficult thing for a machine to determine, but something that's fairly trivial for a human to determine. So good, I should say, great automation can get you to the point where that's most of the work your analysts are doing. Yeah. Being able to make decisions between what, yeah, like provide them with the information to make the decision quickly. That's actually really hard for a, uh, for a machine to, uh, a machine to identify. I suppose, how are you like, in addition to automation, what are some of the, I suppose, what are some of the things you're doing to address the, even still the challenge, the burnout that like your, your team are, your team are dealing with? I have a really strong philosophy on this. I think you have to fit the work to the team. So we have a rigorous process where when we draft our OKRs, we 
identify the things we think we need to do, the things we think we're going to work on. And then we make a list of the projects we need to achieve those. We estimate the amount of time each one's going to take. We stack rank them in order of priority. And then we draw a cut line based on the amount of time we think it's going to take. And it gives us a very clear indication of how much work we can take on in a given period. And that includes projections of how many random interrupts, how many incidents, and the, the predictable, unpredictable things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives us, it's not perfect. We won't hit that number exactly, of course. but it gives a good sense of what we can realistically take on. And it gives the team a sense that, they chose to take this work on. And if they feel like they got burned in a previous quarter, they can take on less work in the next quarter. And when I explain this to my management, I can show them very clearly, here's what we're going to do and why we're going to do this and not other things. And if you want me to move some other project up the list, here's what you're going to lose by doing that. Um, That has been tremendously helpful in keeping the team's workload reasonable. Um, I think another thing that I emphasize is clean pager hygiene. Um, You cannot be waking people up at 2 a.m. regularly for false positives. That is just not acceptable. And it's not that hard to improve by setting clear criteria for the fidelity of alerts that can be connected to a pager, the type of event that needs to be paged. Um, and that also can really drive down the, the burnout factor. Yeah, having the same people who write the detections also being responsible for responding to the detections as well can, uh, can have an effect where they all of a sudden uh, like, well, actually, that detection, <laughs> I don't particularly want to be woken up at 2 a.m. On a, on a Saturday morning for that. So maybe I should um, yeah, maybe I should tune that a little bit more to make sure that it's, uh, it's good quality. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, yeah, I think the, the other things that we've... Uh, uh yeah we've heard obviously just like disconnecting and enabling the folks to yeah to take that time and making sure that you're you're checking in uh checking in with them all the time uh to ensure that they're yeah just as was being being open and being like uh available to talk about it and encouraging people to uh to talk about it and um, i want to go back a little bit to that topic around um i suppose the the stress associated with incidents as well right so like when you were in Microsoft when you were in Google and when you had those like pub like yeah those public security incidents for me it really did impact on yeah like it impact on my stress levels impact on my uh, on my mental health I suppose what have you I suppose how, how have you seen good teams deal with that and like how, how did how did it affect you I think when I first started it was tremendously stressful but I enjoyed it yeah. By the time I left Microsoft, I found that um, we know how to do this. Yes, it is urgent. Yes, it is important. But we have a process. We know how to follow that process. We know that the process leads to good outcomes. And so we need to stay calm and do the things we know how to do, and we will get the best possible outcome. Um yeah, there, there's always a random chance factor that we won't get a good outcome. It's probably never going to be a great outcome overall for the company because a problem has happened that merits an incident response. Yep. But that's not my team's responsibility. My team's responsibility is to start when we find the problem and make things as much better as we can. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that if seconds matter, 
then you as a human don't matter. You're, you're too slow. Uh, if you, you have hours, then you have hours. Take time to think. Don't, don't you know, check out and go to the bar, but you, you don't need to panic if you have hours. And it's just very rare that you have minutes, but not hours. So I think once you've been through this cycle a bunch of times and tabletop exercises and live fire exercises work pretty well for this, mm-hmm. you start to realize that by the time you're able to understand a situation and start making decisions, you have enough time to be thoughtful about the decisions you make and when you decide to wait for more information and when you don't. Yeah, I, I find I'm... Um... When when I whenever like tabletop exercises were great because they got people on the same page. You got you were able to talk through it and you became familiar with the process. Live fire exercises way or like actual incidents really hard. But what I found interesting was uh the way the engineering teams at companies I worked in dealt with incidents was a lot more operational than the way security incidents were dealt with. Because to a certain extent, I think security teams and like if if a if a uh, a product is out or if a site is down it is a major incident but it doesn't feel as um like life or death isn't the right word but it doesn't feel quite as like it's like okay look we're out for a couple of minutes we're out for a couple of minutes we're down for a couple of minutes or we just need to revert this change even though it's affecting some customers but they were able to i, I learned a lot from like sp- spending time with them on incidents where they just treat it as like okay we need to get this person on the call and all right these are the next steps and they actually follow the playbook rather than like kind of run around a little bit in panic like headless chickens which is what happened in a lot of security incidents I dealt with. But ironically, the more, yeah, the more incidents you have, the more familiar you are. And the more comfortable you are in actually, yeah, this is something that I I know what I'm doing. This is what I'm trained for. This is what I've learned about. And also this is where I'm gonna learn a huge amount to be able to show off my skills as well, which is it's kind of a it's a bit of a yeah a two side yeah there's there's two sides to that. But it's uh it's yeah it's been interesting to be able to like learn from those incidents as well. Actually, the hardest problem, I think, is when we are totally in control of the incident. Uh, yeah. Our stakeholders, particularly exact executives, they're worried about the impact of the incident as a whole on security, on the company. And they are panicking because the outcome of this is going to be negative for their scope. Um, and they're trying to interfere with what we're doing. We've got the situation under control, but they need to be 110% sure of that. And we can't get to that extra 10%. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it uh, in some incidents, there, there were plenty where like, you know, you detect something, and it is a P1, there's somebody that's got a foothold or has managed to do X, Y, and Z, but you get them out and you're quite, uh, you know, you're quite confident about it. And you're like, well, my, like, we did our job and we said like this could happen and it's happened, et cetera. But now we're uh you know, now we're in control. Um I found my candidness and like yeah, in those situations didn't always translate into being a good uh, a good corporate partner. I remember at one point telling somebody, um, yeah, it was a, a GC at one of the companies I worked for being like, it's actually quite a you know, an unsophisticated attack. They just, you know, they got lucky. Versus like, what do you mean it was an unsophisticated attack? I'm like, well, these 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 things happen, but they did not appreciate my, yeah, just my casual, uh, casual nature to uh, to some attacks, unfortunately. Executive stakeholder communication is, I think, one of the hardest skills for incident responders to develop and one of the most important as well. 
yeah definitely i, I yeah I, and yeah definitely not something that i was uh i was super strong i learned it and a lot more uh, a lot more comfortable with it now obviously but yeah it takes a uh, takes a little while um executive yes executive stakeholder communication is a great a great thing to, to focus on what other advice would you have for others who are leading security teams uh today speaking specifically to managers psychological safety is everything if you have a team trust each other deeply they'll share good ideas they'll share bad ideas they'll point out problems in each other's approaches designs implementations operations they'll take responsibility for mistakes that they've made and make it better they'll take responsibility for open questions uh, they'll proactively get out there and solve problems and generally they'll get a lot done um, if things go badly they'll band together they'll support each other and they'll learn from each other and generally they'll love being part of the team they'll love their jobs um, and you as a manager have to set the stage for that and that can come through uh, the messages you send, I think that's a very powerful tool, just the way you talk about these situations. Um, it can come from coaching individuals on their behavior, giving them the right feedback, particularly if they're not providing the support, but also when they are, uh, the people you hire, and uh, in the worst case, having to give consequences to someone who's behaving badly, um, but that basically never happens. That's really interesting. And so when you're so talking about psychological safety, it's the ability to make mistakes, the ability to say, hey, like you're, you know, giving, giving them consistent feedback, saying you're doing well in your job, you don't need to worry. And we encourage you to yeah, be sharing these and being open to that, uh, being open to that feedback. Yeah, you can think of it like person one says, hey, I have this idea. I'm not really sure if it's any good, but they put it out there. Person two says, yeah, you know, I see problems here, here and here. But I do think that this part is really valuable. Let's build on that. And person one says, oh, yeah, you're right. Those are real problems. But but this is also useful. What if we did this other thing? And they're off. And now you've got what started off as not a very good idea turning into a really good one because people trusted each other to give feedback, receive it, and build on it. Yeah, it sounds like a, well, yeah, it's an incredibly healthy way to build a team. But it's definitely, uh, I can see it being... Yeah, super useful in in security because yeah, there's loads of ways of getting things wrong, but you want people. I'd much rather people asking questions and saying, you know what, I think this is a bit strange. I'd love to get your uh, love to get your eyes on it, or I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Otherwise, you're definitely going to uh, you're definitely going to miss things. Yeah, you have to be careful about the reverse. Um, some security people are very good at pointing out problems and not good about making the other person feel comfortable and accepting that feedback, that's a place where coaching and feedback can really help and help people understand how to communicate in a way that brings others in rather than pushing them away. Yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah, we're, we can be a strange bunch, unfortunately. Um, so if you're, if you're thinking about like security operations teams in the future, five years from now, what, what do you think a security team will what do you think a good security team will look like and what are you excited by? So I think that the core structure of security teams probably won't change very much. It's been five plus years that we've had detection and response teams, threat intelligence teams, and the org structures and even the team names are often very similar from one organization to the next. Yeah, sometimes they're consolidated, sometimes they're slightly different, but the basic functions 
are the same and have been the same for some time. I think where we will see a lot of evolution, um, one area is insider threat. I think a lot of organizations are still underfunding their insider threat programs. They're underestimating the risk. They're thinking that this is something that happens to defense contractors when in reality, insider threats are everywhere. They're happening to every company. Mm -hmm. And there's growing awareness of this problem, but I think we still have a long way to go in recognizing how big a problem insider threat is and how much we need to invest in detecting and responding to it. Uh, I'm really excited about the future of LLMs, uh, generative AI, and related technologies. Um, I think this, although it's a very hype technology, I think there's a lot of substance behind the hype that can be relevant to our area. Uh, one thing I've been playing with is using GPT to develop uh, realistic-looking security events so that we can feed what looks like a true attack into our detection machinery, into our SOC team, so that we can see, is that event properly detected? Do the analysts properly triage that? Um, this is something we've had a lot of trouble as an industry with providing good validation of our detection and response. Yeah. And, uh, I think LLMs could be a way to solve that problem. That's pretty smart. Who, uh, is that something bespoke you're building internally or are you working with a vendor for that? I know this is just an idea I've had. Oh, just uh, an idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, it, it's like, there's nothing worse than, well, they're useful, but like an iCar file. Oh, congratulations. You detected that. But like, yeah, if you want, like, I want to know, can my EDR detect like, Hey, today's mal spam campaign. Or I want to know if I actually make some changes, how quickly am I going to be able to detect if somebody's like messing around in my uh in my AWS accounts, etc. So yeah, it's hard. But yeah, being able to if you're able to yeah, generate uh generate logs, it feels like that'd be a good, yeah, really good way of testing it without having to go through the the fun of hiring and uh, engaging your uh your red team or an external pen, team of pen testers who yeah are going to uh they'll definitely give you things to uh to work on. David, unfortunately, this is all we're going to have time for. I feel like there's a whole load of uh, a whole load of other areas that we could dive into. And um, but thank you so much for coming on. If people want to, like, uh, yeah, people want to find out a little bit more about you, where's the where's the best place to go if they want to follow your journey? LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect with me. Uh, I publish articles there periodically, although not as much as I'd like. Um, David Seidman, uh, Robinhood. That should you should be able to find me pretty readily. Great. Um, Bob, well, look, thank you so much for coming on and I hope we have you on again at some stage in the future. Thank you for having me. It was really great to be here. I really appreciate the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit Tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.